Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. This week on the podcast, so retinol, you get a bad rap. Is it not bad for you? I believe that the concern with retinol in general is overblown. Are chemical peels all okay to do or are some toxic? The phenol is so toxic that if you do too much of the face, you can get a cardiac arrhythmia and die. Oh, wow. What are your thoughts on fillers and Botox? So we do know that it may potentially migrate, but we have not seen any sign that this is anything that has been harmful at all. Known as America's holistic plastic surgeon, Anthony Yoon is a nationally recognized board-certified plastic surgeon. Recognized as a leader in his field, he's the author of the best-selling books, The Age Fix, In Stitches, and Playing God. His public television special, The Age Fix, with Dr. Anthony Yoon, has been viewed by millions. Dr. Yoon also hosts the popular podcast, The Holistic Plastic Surgery Show. He is the most followed plastic surgeon on social media with over 4.5 million subscribers on his YouTube channel and 8 million followers on TikTok. His new book, Younger for Life, is a complete holistic guide for turning back the clock using the process of auto-juvenation. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I am really excited for our guest because I am just so honored that he would be on our show. You guys probably know him. He's huge on TikTok and YouTube, like I said in the bio. And so welcome to the show, Dr. Yoon. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I appreciate it. And you call me Tony. You don't have to call me Dr. Yoon. All All right. We'll call you Tony. That sounds great. Like I said, I'm really excited to talk to you and ask you so many questions. I probably have way too many questions than we have time for. But as I'm aging, I'm like just loving your book, by the way. I've been reading that and I have so many questions. But before we delve into those questions, will you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got started in all of this? Yeah. So basically the day I was born, my parents who are first generation Korean American immigrants decided I was going to be a doctor and uh, they wanted me to be not just any doctor, but a high powered surgeon and like a cardiac surgeon or transplant surgeon or vascular surgeon. And it wasn't until I saw a 60 year old man stumble out of the call room in the middle of the night to attend to a trauma as a medical student that I realized that, oh my gosh, like that is not for me. I, I don't have that personality. And so I went through a transformation between high school and college where I used to have this really large jaw and I had my jaw actually broken and reset. And it really taught me at that time how changing your appearance can really change how you feel about yourself and really change my confidence level and all that. And so that was kind of the beginning of it. Then here I am in medical school and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be this doctor that my parents wanted me to be. What should I be? And I've always been a bit of an artist. And so I found the field of plastic surgery and it really called to me. So I went through four years of medical school. I did three years of general surgery residency, two years of plastic surgery residency training. I spent a year out in Beverly Hills with one of the top plastic surgeons out there. And I moved back to Michigan where I started my own practice back in 2004. And I thought that I'd reached the pinnacle of success several years into practice where I had patients flying in from all over the country to see me. And then I had a patient with a terrible complication from a facelift I performed. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. It just sometimes bad things happen. And it really got me really into thinking like, am I doing the right thing? You know, it's like the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And was I doing harm by performing these cosmetic operations? And 
I hit really a situation where I questioned whether I should continue being a plastic surgeon, what type of doctor am I, and I really got to the point where I learned that everything I was taught about being a plastic surgeon was wrong. The goal of being a plastic surgeon should not be what they taught me, which is to bring people to the operating room, but it should be the opposite, is how do I keep mm. people out of the operating room, yet help them to look and feel their best, and this got me on this path towards auto-juvenation and my new book and all of that as well. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Like you said, you have this new book out and it's about anti-aging and taking care of your skin and how we can, you know, keep our skin looking nice and young. And so first of all, let's just talk about aging. What causes aging and do we really have that much control over aging? Um, so we do. Now it's, it's estimated that 20% of aging and how we age is written into our genes. And the other 80% of how we age is determined by a lot of other things, basically how you live your life. And it's this whole idea of epigenetics where, yes, our genes, we cannot control what our parents give us, but what we can control is how our genes express themselves. And so the way that I look at it, you know, and I look at the way our, our face, our skin ages, is there are five main causes of aging of our skin. It is nutrient depletion, uh, collagen degradation, oxidation or free radicals, chronic inflammation, and a buildup of cellular waste. And these five things that can age our skin, almost all of them, they're impacted first by the food that we eat. And so in the book, that's what I start with is, you know, starting with really diet. Diet really is the foundation of a true anti-aging or age slowing down <laughs> protocol uh, because that impacts really all those five ways that our body ages. Okay, before we delve into this more, I do have a question because I've talked to plastic surgeons before and most of them don't talk about nutrition and things like this and what you're eating and lifestyle factors. So are you considered a holistic plastic surgeon? So that was a term that I came up with many years ago. So when I hit rock bottom after this patient had this terrible complication, I realized that what I was taught was wrong, you know, and this kind of cut first idea was wrong. I started questioning everything that I was taught. I know one of the things we're going to talk about later are breast implants. That's something too. But I started really looking into things that, you know, what I think I realized is that this light came on for me, Carlin, and I realized that I don't know what I don't know and that there was a lot that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with all the training that I explained to you, I had very little training in nutrition and how our diet and our lifestyle really impacts how we age. Um, and even with skincare, you know, there was actually where I trained in plastic surgery, there was a turf war between dermatologists and plastic surgeons, and they were fighting over cosmetic patients. And so because of that, as a plastic surgery resident, they would not send me to dermatologists to learn from them. You know, they basically wow. cut that off. Um, and so I spent thousands of hours learning all this my own from nutritionists, from naturopaths, from chiropractors, from other physicians to really get that knowledge that I had not known about before. And so, yes, that's that's why, you know, and I tell you, you know, I go to plastic surgery meetings, you know, almost every year. And I'll tell you, you know, just uh, one simple sign of, of how little we know as plastic surgeons about nutrition and, and the impact on our skin is a traditional lunch at our meetings consists of some type of a ham or turkey sub, or maybe like a salami sub, a bag of chips, a Coke, and then maybe a chocolate chip cookie made from one of these like huge plate, you know, factories yep. that they package it all up like the ultra processed foods. Right. That's typically the, the lunch they feed us all. And that's what everybody eats. 
And, and you and I both know that that is not a recipe for staying young. That's the exact opposite. And so there's so little knowledge, unfortunately, in plastic surgery and a lot of other medical fields about the importance of food and a lot of things that you cover in your podcast and, and, and the information that you give out. Wow. We could do a whole podcast about how this isn't taught in medical school and how this applies to so many things, but we've heard it over and over that it's doctors like you that have gone and done their own research to figure out the nutrition component and the lifestyle factors components and things like that. So that's the route I want to go with you today and ask you more questions about this. And so Back to aging now, now that we know what being a holistic plastic surgeon is, let's talk about aging. So you talk about autojuvenation. What is that exactly? Let's tell the listeners what that is. And then I know you have five pillars of this autojuvenation. So we're going to talk about that also, but let's just talk about what that is. So autojuvenation is the fact, is a term that I basically came up with because I needed to come up with a term that made sense about how our bodies can truly rejuvenate themselves. And so autojuvenation basically means is that our body contains immense regenerative abilities to rejuvenate itself, to turn back the clock naturally. But the key is that we have to unlock that ability by giving it the right tools. And those tools include what you eat. Uh, Well, I'll tell you those pillars, basically, you know, the five pillars of autojuvenation is what you eat, when you eat, nutritional supplements, skincare, and non-invasive treatments. And so by focusing on these five things, you can really unlock your body's potential to turn back the clock. And this whole idea of autojuvenation is the basis of the book and the fact that, you know what, as a holistic plastic surgeon, you know, I still operate. I operate on a patient this morning. I did six hours of surgery yesterday. But I always use actual plastic surgery as a last resort because if you focus on these other five pillars, my belief is a vast majority of people do not need to feel that they have to go under the knife in order to look and feel vibrant, youthful, healthy, and that they feel that they look great. That's actually really good to know because I feel like there's a misconception out there that you do need to go have surgery to feel young and look young again. So let's actually talk about some of these things. So when you say what you eat, what are the foods? What should we be looking for? So certain foods are not going to be a surprise for your audience. So if I say, hey, colorful fruits and vegetables are fantastic for your skin because they're filled with various uh, antioxidants, you'll say, yeah, yeah, people know that. But there are other foods that I guess a lot of people may not realize that can really impact the skin. So, you know, we could talk about, and I know you've talked a lot about omega-3s. You're a big fan of omega-3, you know, rich foods. I'm a big fan of taking omega-3 supplements. There are a couple of groups of food that people may be a little bit surprised of, or maybe they didn't know that this can actually correlate to the health of your skin. So for example, collagen is the protein that makes up about 70 to 80% of our skin. That's a part of our skin that causes our skin to look and feel nice and plump and thick and firm and youthful. And we start to lose about 1% of the thickness of collagen every year, starting about in our mid-20s. In women after menopause, that increases up to about 2% a year. And that's one reason why we see some women who are in their 70s and 80s and their skin is so thin, it's almost like tissue paper thin and it can get torn literally from a scratch. So one of the things we wanna do as we get older is we want to make sure that we help to promote the collagen and slow down that collagen breakdown And the big way to do that is to make sure we're eating enough protein. Protein is a huge subject right now because people are talking about as you get older, you want to avoid sarcopenia. The breakdown of muscles is so important to be strong as you get older. But a lot of people don't realize is that actually increasing the amount of protein that you eat can really help with your skin as well because you need that for the collagen. Another group of foods that I think a lot of people don't realize that's really skin healthy are fermented foods. 
So our diet is basically devoid of fermented foods now, the standard American diet is essentially sterile. The connection between fermented foods and the skin essentially has to do with the microbiome. And there actually is a gut-skin axis where the health of our gut, the health of our microbiome shows on our skin. And this was something that a dermatologist friend of mine uh, wrote a paper on many years ago. And we're just now kind of learning that these connections are significant and there are specific skin conditions that have actually been shown to be directly connected with the health of the gut. Inflammatory skin conditions like eczema, like rosacea, like acne, you know, if you help to heal your gut, you can definitely help to heal your skin as well. Yeah, so fascinating. So about the collagen though, because I know my listeners will ask, is taking collagen helpful or they need to really just focus on the protein? So it actually is. And this has been a big subject um, online. There's a lot of debate online. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of family docs. I get people comment and ask me questions. You know, I was thinking of taking a collagen supplement, but my family doc told me, don't bother taking it. It right. doesn't work. Or it's going to get broken down in your stomach. Or there's no science to show it helps. Yep. So what are the facts, Carlin? Um, so if you were to have said this five to seven years ago and say, you know, that the science is not necessarily supportive or we're not sure then that would probably be a reasonable statement. But in today's day and age, it is no longer. There was a meta-analysis of over 1,100 people. 90 days, they took a hydrolyzed collagen supplement and found a statistically significant improvement in the hydration of the skin, in the elasticity of the skin, and in fine lines and wrinkles. There was another meta-analysis literally uh, of over 1,700 people, participants, that they published just last year, 2023, that shows something very, very similar. And meta-analyses are essentially are combinations of smaller studies that they put together to make one larger study with a lot more power. So really the fact is, is that there are a ton of studies that show that taking a hydrolyzed collagen supplement can definitely help with the collagen thickness of your skin, with fine lines and wrinkles, with hydration, with the plumpness of your skin, they work. And if a doctor or somebody else says that they don't work, or that the studies don't support it, the fact is they just haven't actually looked at the recent studies because the studies are clear now. Oh, so interesting. I'm so glad I asked that because it is a debate all the time and I hear all the sides of it. So thank you for explaining that. So really quickly, you touched upon omega-3s. And like you said, I talk about them a lot, but we talk yeah. about them for brain health, hormone health, and also that they help with inflammation. And so is there another component that they help with with the skin or it's due to helping with the inflammation? It really is that inflammation component. And so one of the big causes of uh, skin aging is chronic inflammation. And you know, there's a big difference between chronic and acute inflammation of the skin. Acute inflammation of the skin can actually be a good thing. So if you go, let's say to a dermatologist or to a med spa and you get a laser treatment or you get a chemical peel or you get microneedling, these treatments will create acute inflammation in your skin. Retinol, same thing, acute inflammation. And when you get the skin acutely inflamed or technically damaged, then the collagen, once again, that makes up 70 to 80% of your skin, that gets damaged. And when it heals, it heals in a tighter fashion. And that's what gets tighter skin after you do these treatments. That's why you do a laser treatment and your skin is tighter afterwards or a chemical peel. It's chronic inflammation that is the problem. And chronic inflammation is something that will prematurely age the skin. Honestly, the big contributor to chronic inflammation, sugar. Sugar will chronically inflame your skin. And once again, eating good, healthy omega-3 fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, those are great ways to fight that chronic inflammation from the inside out. Okay. 
I'm curious then. So sugar, obviously, we know contributes to inflammation, therefore is not good to the skin. So I'm assuming you don't like seed oils then either because they can contribute to inflammation. So yeah, and, and when you look actually at oils and frying your food too, specifically, that's what you're looking at with free radicals and oxidation as well. So a lot of the foods that are really rich in free radicals, free radicals and oxidation being one of those five causes of aging of the skin, those ultra processed type foods, which oftentimes are filled with those types of seed oils, those are the foods that are highest in free radicals. And that's one way that, that they directly damage the skin and prematurely age the skin as well. So interesting. Okay, so I know one of the pillars of your rejuvenation is when to eat. And so what do you mean by that? So what I mean by that actually is uh, intermittent fasting and just in general fasting. Now, you know, there are anti-aging scientists out there where basically all they do is they look at fasting and longevity, you know, and for me, longevity obviously is a big thing. And I cover that in the book, but I'm also looking at kind of the skin aspects of it too, because a lot of these anti-aging scientists that are great with talking about how can you live longer and extend your health span don't necessarily look all that youthful and they may <laughs> live a long time, but maybe they don't look that way. Uh, and so how can you do both? How can you also live a long time, but also look youthful as well? And so really, when you look at uh, when you eat, the idea is to take some time to intermittently fast. The benefit of intermittent fasting, you know, there are metabolic benefits and things like that. But in general, when you're looking at the health of the skin, it has to do with autophagy. So one of the main reasons why our skin ages is a buildup of cellular waste. So just the fact that we are alive and our cells are functioning, they create waste products. These waste products are proteins, they're used organelles, they're even potentially discarded mitochondria. And, and these waste products can build up inside of our cells, causing our cells not to function as efficiently, uh, just because they're kind of built up with all this junk. Now our body has an internal recycling process to get rid of that, to actually use those intracellular discarded proteins and waste products as energy. And that process is called autophagy. So when we take time off from eating, at least a minimum of 12 hours, ideally even up to 16, that stimulates the process of autophagy. Because our bodies are not getting fuel because you're not eating, your bodies will then utilize that intracellular waste, those proteins for energy. It cleans out the inside of the cells. The cells start to function more efficiently and they're basically acting younger. And once again, there you go. It's a good way to extend longevity, but also to potentially make your skin look better. And we've actually seen people who've done different types of intermittent or short-term fasts and have seen a significant improvement in their skin while they're doing that. You explained autophagy so well. That's like just such a great way to understand it. And so for those listening, I know intermittent fasting gets a controversial, you know, wrap out there on social media as well. So if someone's just beginning, 12 hours every day would be great, right? Like yes. seven to seven. I think that's great. You know, I think in the end, it's like we love to try to make uh, rules that everybody should follow. And there, you know, I, we have friends who are biohackers who are like, oh, yeah, you know, take 50 supplements a day. But that's not realistic for the majority of people. And I think really what I encourage my followers to do is you know your body the best. But what you may not know is if you make certain changes in what you eat or in your lifestyle, you don't know how great you may feel afterwards. So test things out, you know, go with a 12 hour fast and see how you do with that. If you go 16 hours and you're feeling really, really crummy, then, then drop it down to 12 and see if that works for you. I think that not everybody's bodies work the same way. Get in tune to your body, 
try these types of things, you know, whether it's intermittent fasting, whether it's going off of gluten for a while or reducing or getting off dairy for a while, reducing some of these sugary drinks, see how your body feels, give yourself two to three weeks, and you may be surprised at just how amazing you can feel and even look. I love that advice. Plus, they could start at 12 hours, and once they're good with that, try 13 and then 14. It's almost like practicing it. I, I agree. I think, you know, with fasting, if you've never really done that before, don't expect you're going to go with 16 hours and feel great. You know, start slow, work your way up, and just be proud of yourself with every step that you take. That's great. You know, you don't have to do what some of our biohacker friends do and go on a five-day water fast and stuff. Like, <laughs> don't don't expect, you know, I can't, I can't climb Everest, you know. Right. I don't expect I'm going to be able to do that. Right. Um, but I can do my own, you know, I love going on hikes, but yeah, I'm not going to do that. I love that. Great analogy. Okay. So the third pillar of your rejuvenation is nutritional supplements. And so we've talked about the omega threes and collagen and things like that. So are there other nutritional supplements you recommend? Yeah. And I think that you had a great podcast a couple of weeks ago where you went over five of the best supplements to take. And I'm really on the same page in general there. I think there are basic supplements that I think everybody should take. And that's where I try to start with people. And so it's taking a daily multivitamin. I mentioned earlier that one of the main agers of our skin is nutrient depletion. And there was actually a study that actually confirmed, you know, we talk all the time in alternative health that our soil is uh, not as nutrient filled as it used to be due to industrial farming practices. And so our produce is not as nutritious as it used to be. There was actually a study that was conducted where they looked at fruits and vegetables here in the United States. And it went from 1950 all the way to 1999 and found a significant reduction in six main nutrients. And three of those are the ones that really stand out to me, iron, vitamin C, and protein. You know? hmm. So this, was, this study that really ended way back in 1999 was proof that what we say about the fact that our fruits and vegetables are not as nutritious as they used to be, there actually is study and proof, yes, yeah, supporting that. So taking a daily multivitamin, I definitely recommend. Uh, we talked about omega-3 supplement. We talked about a collagen supplement. I recommend that for virtually anybody. Although if you are plant-based, plant-based collagen is very different than an animal-based collagen. And we can talk about that later if you want. Um, and then taking a daily probiotic, at least 3 billion colony-forming units. We talked about the importance of the microbiome. And then I usually recommend that people take some type of an antioxidant supplement, you know, one that contains a number of antioxidants like resveratrol, um, you know, green tea, that type of thing, because I do think that we are not in general eating enough colorful fruits and vegetables, and that can definitely help with it. So really, those are just the five supplements that I recommend everybody take. Very basic, uh, but I think covers most of those bases that you need. Okay, that's nice and easy for people to do. That's nothing hard. Everyone can do that. Okay, your fourth pillar of rejuvenation is skincare. So this one I'm really interested in hearing about. So what do you recommend to people? So, you know, there's so many people who go to these department stores and it's confusing on what mm -hmm. to buy. And so I try to like what we've done with this other stuff. I really try to simplify it into what everybody can definitely do. And if you want to add to it, by all means, do that. Uh, but the basic is a, it's what we call the two minutes, five years younger skincare routine. And so we actually put people on this skincare routine. It literally took them two minutes a day. And then after two months, we took photos of them before and after. We put them online and we asked people, how much younger do they look? And they looked an average of about five years younger. Wow. Now, I'm going to tell you first, Carlin, if you did the skincare routine, you are not going to look five years younger afterwards because you look too good already. Like, oh, you you're so nice. That's not good. But <laughs> someone with average skin who hasn't been taking really good care of their skin, then definitely five years younger. It could be very, very doable. Um, so this is a skincare regimen. You start off every morning. You got to cleanse your skin with a cleanser appropriate for your skin type. 
So for example, if you've got really oily skin, then you wanna go with a foaming type cleanser. That may help get rid of some of your excess oil. If you've got sensitive skin or dry skin, then look for a more milky or hydrating cleanser. And then you wanna apply an antioxidant uh, serum afterwards. Typically, vitamin C is the most common. Vitamin C is an antioxidant. I, the idea is we've gotta fight oxidation and free radicals, pollution and environmental pollutants, people cigarette smoking around you, the foods that you eat. This is gonna to help to fight all of that during the day. Bonus, if you wanna add vitamin E to it, there was a study that showed that if you combine vitamin C and vitamin E, you can actually get a synergistic effect. Um, hmm. So, but if all you have is vitamin C, that's okay. Vitamin C and or E in the morning. And then you wanna apply a sunscreen. The American Academy of Dermatology recommends at least an SPF 30. That's what I recommend as well. There are controversies regarding sunscreen. I'm happy to chat about that if you'd like. I know you've covered some of that with the pharmacist before as well. Yeah. That's all I have to do in the morning. Okay. Uh, in the morning, cleanse, antioxidant serum, sunscreen. In the evening, gotta cleanse your skin. If you only wash your skin once a day, you gotta do it in the evening. You gotta get rid of the day's worth of grime and dust and pollution and your makeup and all of that. And then you wanna apply an anti-aging cream. The one that we usually recommend as a starter for people is a retinol. Retinol is a derivative of vitamin A. It's found in a lot of different skincare lines. And really it's the most scientifically proven and studied over-the-counter anti-aging ingredient. It will help with fine lines and wrinkles. It will exfoliate the skin. It will help to thicken the dermis of the skin. We talked about how the skin gets thinner as you get older. And it can even help to uh, improve pigmentation. I said, after that, if you want to apply a moisturizer, that's fine, but you don't have to. You know, if you live in, let's say, Florida and it's the summertime, you don't necessarily need to wear moisturizer if you're not feeling dry. And then the final step, and that's what I do at night. So cleanse, you apply your um, retinol or other anti-aging cream and then moisturizer. And then once or twice a week, once if you have sensitive skin, two to three times a week, if you have quote unquote normal skin, you wanna exfoliate your skin, ideally with a gentle scrub or maybe with an alpha hydroxy acid peel. That's the skincare, the two minute skincare, five year skincare uh, routine. Okay, that's pretty easy. I have a few questions though. So retinol, yes. you get a bad rap and a good rap, both sides on social media about retinol. And I've heard people say like, it's completely toxic, don't use it. We've got all these other natural things to use instead. So is it not bad for you? It's fine? So when you look at retinol, it is a derivative of vitamin A. There is prescription strength, which is tretinoin or retin-A, and that's quite, that can be quite strong. You gotta get that through a doctor. And then there's the over-counter retinol. There's some um, websites like the Environmental Working Group. There's an app called uh, Think Dirty that's all about skincare products, not other dirty stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is something that I'm aware of. I'll tell you, I have never talked to a dermatologist who has been anti-retinol. I believe that the concern with retinol in general is overblown in general. I think if you're looking at tretinoin, that's a much stronger drug. You don't want to be on, in general, either of those if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. I believe that retinol is completely safe. So I would say that I feel that that's all overblown, but that's my opinion. Now, if, however, you have sensitive skin, both of those products can create dryness and irritation and, and even an acute inflammation like an acute dermatitis. The idea behind those products is sometimes you'll get an acute inflammation to actually reduce chronic inflammation. But if you've got really sensitive skin and you're kind of hesitant on using a retinol, then that's okay. Go for Bacuchiol. Bacuchiol is a plant-based alternative. It's from the uh, Babchi plant. And this has been around for centuries in Ayurveda and Chinese medicine. And there was a study that compared 
the anti-aging effects of retinol to Bakuchiol and found them to be very similar, but the difference is Bakuchiol did not create as much skin irritation. Hmm. Um, and so, yes, if you're at all concerned about retinol, I have no concerns about it, but if you don't want to use it, then go with the Bakuchiol because you may get a fairly similar result. I'll tell you what I use, Carlin, every night. I use both. <laughs> oh, there you go. They work differently, and I have no issues with the retinol, but I use both. Okay, good to know. So if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, you can use retinol. You cannot. Oh, cannot. Not. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Now, I don't know if there are any studies that show that it's technically harmful, but I do know that uh, Retin-A is something that we do uh, recommend people avoid. Now, a distant cousin of that is like Accutane, uh, and that you definitely know can cause major issues if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Right. Okay. So then is it okay to use retinol every night over and over? Because sometimes people will say, you know, only use it for a few weeks and take a week break, things like that. But it's okay every night? Yeah, so the issue with using it long term is uh, not that there is any like toxicity or thing that you worry about. It's just that there's some people who you want to space it out because if you've got real sensitive skin, it can be it can, can create that acute inflammation initially and that people may not like. So for example, Carlin, the first time that I actually used Retin-A, tretinoin, I was prescribed it when I was a medical student by my family doctor and she had really thick, oily skin. And she said, oh, you've got acne issues, Dr. Yoon. Um, or Mr. Yoon, I guess at the time. <laughs> uh, she said, I use this 0.1% Retin-A. I do it every night on my skin. It really helps my acne. So I said, oh, why don't I try that? And so she wrote it for me. She goes, use it every night. And I put on my skin every night. And my, I gave it to my wife at the time who was having some adult acne too. For some reason, we break out at the same time, my wife and I. It's really <laughs> weird. And so she started using it every day. And I didn't see her for a few days uh, because we were both residents in the hospital. And when I saw her five days later, we started laughing at each other because both of our faces were bright red, they're flaking Flaky. and just like on fire. <laughs> oh, funny. So, so my skin is not tolerant of really aggressive retinoids. And in that situation, I would have done much better using a lighter strength and maybe doing it every three or four days to start out with. Okay. So if you've got more sensitive skin and you want to try retinol, the issue is not that you can't use it long term, but you may want to start using it every couple of days until your skin gets used to it, unless you're okay with being flaky and, and potentially a bit red and stuff. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. All right, the fifth pillar of your autojuvenation is non-invasive treatments. I know my listeners are going to be very intrigued by this because I've never had anyone on really talking about this. And so what do you mean by this? Is this the like microneedling, lasers, things like that? Yeah, so there are so many things now that we can do non-invasively that can help to get the changes you're looking for. So for example, the first thing that I would recommend, so you know, so if you've got listeners who are, let's say, in small towns, in rural areas, they don't have access to a med spa or dermatologist, or maybe they're on a really strict budget, the first thing I would recommend if you want to do something more than the skincare and the foods and the intermittent fasting and the supplements is to do red light therapy. Uh, red light therapy comes in many different forms. You can get handheld devices that I'm not a huge fan of just because you got to move them around your face all the time. Uh, you can get masks that you wear for 10 or 20 minutes at a time, scare your spouse with it. Um, you've got handheld devices that you can put, let's say, on, on top of a, a table and put your face in that. Uh, and there's even full beds that you can do with red light. So the idea behind red light therapy is that the energy of the red light gets taken up by the mitochondria of your skin cells, and it helps to power the mitochondria to produce more ATP. Uh, and essentially what that does is it causes our, our cells to become energized and to essentially be more youthful. 
Um, and there are studies that actually do where they've done split face studies, where they've taken the, the face, they split it in half, they treat one side of the face with a sham laser, something that doesn't do anything, and the other side with red light therapy and have found a statistically significant improvement in the collagen, the elastin, and the wrinkles of the side treated with red light therapy. Interesting. Um, so it definitely works. And if you're looking for, let's say, something you can do at home that's inexpensive, relatively inexpensive, then that would be the first place to start. So I'm a huge fan of red light therapy, and I talk to people about it all the time because it does so much for the mitochondria, which can help more than just the skin. But a complaint I get quite often is people want like a magical fix. And so they'll say like, I've been doing this for a few weeks and I don't see any difference. So is there a length of time that it's like six weeks, then maybe you'll see some improvement or is it months and months or you can't put a time frame to it? No, typically you're looking at starting in about two months or so. Uh, so if you're saying, okay, well, what can I get that's going to be quick? So for example, one of the good banks for your buck, if you're looking at non-invasive is IPL, intense pulse light. This is something that you can't really do at home, but you have to do in an office. And what that does is it uses uh, basically light energy to target the dark spots on your skin and to essentially heat up the dark spots to cause the melanin to be damaged so that your body clears it, okay? Mm. And so if you've got dark spots on your face, sunspots, age spots, uh, you zap it with the IPL, and within about a week, those dark spots get darker, and they start to slough off. Mm. So that you can definitely get an immediate or one, within one week change. It is completely non-invasive, but it's also expensive, you know? And for us to have for us to do that, you need to be a licensed provider. You need to know about the settings because you can burn somebody with that. Hmm. The benefit of red light therapy is that you can do that in the comfort of your own home and not worry that you're going to damage your skin or create a burn on your skin. But because it's, you know, because it doesn't have that type of power to it, it's going to take longer for you to see those results. And, and that's just going to be the way it is. Like there's never going to be something that you can just, you know, a light based or energy treatment that you can use on your face once or over a couple of times and see a major change, that's gonna end up being regulated by the FDA and they're not gonna allow you just to anybody to do it at home because most likely you're gonna have the risk of burns or some other type of a complication. Okay, that makes sense. And it takes time just like most things in life when you're trying to get healthier or you know help your skin out. So I'm curious what other non-invasive treatments you like besides like red light and then obviously the IPL. Yeah, so the IPL is great. The other thing, it's not quite non-invasive, but it's minimally invasive, is microneedling, ideally with either PRP or with radio frequency. So one of the things I mentioned earlier is the idea that you can cause an acute inflammation to your skin, and that can damage the collagen and cause the collagen to be tighter. So if you feel like, geez, my skin's not as tight as it used to be, what can I do to tighten it up? Then it's creating that acute trauma. Now, some of, sometimes you can do it with minimal downtime, like with microneedling. Microneedling essentially is a in-office version of dermal rollers. So you've seen people roll their skin with the dermal rollers. Those are basically, uh, they almost look like paint rollers, but they have tiny little pins on those rollers. And those pins, as you roll it over your skin, creates acute trauma, acute inflammation. That trauma then causes the collagen to be damaged and the collagen then heals tighter. The issue with using a dermal roller that most dermatologists and plastic surgeons aren't fond of is that you can get more tearing from it and you don't get quite even pokes of the skin. Mm -hmm. Because it rolls, you can get tearing and, and it's not what we usually recommend. Now, there are dermal stampers that you can buy over the counter uh, where you literally will stamp the skin with the tiny needles. That is much safer because now you're getting a very even penetration of those needles. Or we can do that automated in the office where we can 
target the exact depth of needle penetration to create either a more aggressive treatment or a less aggressive treatment. Now, the reason why I'm a big fan of microneedling is not necessarily that it's gonna get a better result than let's say a laser treatment, but if I buy a laser, that will cost me in my office maybe $200,000. Oh, wow. If I buy a microneedling pen, that may cost me $5,000. And the cost of the overhead of doing that treatment is gonna be passed off onto you, the mm. patient. And so if I do, let's say, a chemical peel that costs me maybe $30 overhead, then I'm going to charge you much less than if I use a laser that I'm paying a lease on, you know, $4,000 a month lease on it, then you know you're going to get a portion of that cost attributed to you. So when you're looking at bang for your buck, I think IPL is great, but not as good as, let's say, microneedling or even chemical peels. Those are two much less expensive treatments that can potentially get you similar results as a more, as a more expensive laser treatment but at much less cost. Okay, so good to know. And I have a question about chemical peels because there's a huge wide variety of chemical peels out there. You know, anything from a light little slough of skin to a huge drastic peeling of skin. Yeah. So are they all okay to do or are some toxic or are they all safe? So yeah, the way I would look at it is there are kind of like four categories of chemical peels. The first category are the lunchtime peels. And those are usually glycolic peels. They may be lactic acid peels. Those are the ones you do uh, at a med spa. You know, you may feel a little tingle on your skin, then you leave and your skin feels a little bit smoother and stuff, but then a week later, you may not notice really much from it. Those are nice because they will exfoliate your skin. It's similar to if you get, let's say, a nice soft scrub and you do a scrub on your skin and afterwards it feels nice and soft afterwards. So those are fine, they're not dangerous, but also, you know, benefits are gonna be limited. Uh, the next group of peels would be about a two to three day downtime. They're gonna be more of the superficial peels, but they go deeper than just this lunchtime. Those you can potentially see improvements in skin, uh, in fine lines and wrinkles, and in spots. Um, and there's a number of different names for those, um, but in general, you, the way you wanna look at peels is you wanna ask, how long will I peel for? Because the length of peeling will determine how deep that peel is. Mm. So there's the no downtime, which once again, is kind of a, a gentle exfoliation. There's about a two to three day downtime peel. We have one of those called the Jesner's peel in my office. And that's nice for people who are like, hey, I just wanna do it on a Friday and look good by Monday. Mm. You, you can definitely see a nice change in the skin, especially if you do a few of them. And then the one after that would be con considered more of a moderate depth chemical peel. Now you're looking at peels that go into what we call the superficial dermis, which is a deeper layer of skin. Then you can see more of a change, but you're also looking at maybe a seven day downtime where oh, your wow. skin will literally peel for seven days. Well, you're gonna see a much better change with that, especially with the coloration of the skin, with the smoothness of the skin, um, but you've got significant downtime. And I think those can be done very safely. We do those in my office as well. The final group of peels are gonna be the really aggressive ones, like the phenol peel. The phenol peel is a peel that's been around for decades and it's a peel that you can literally only peel a quadrant of your face at a time. Oh, wow. Because the phenol is so toxic that if you do too much of the face, you can get a cardiac arrhythmia and die. Oh, wow. I'm not a fan of that peel. <laughs> wow. If you go on TikTok, you'll see there are people who do get those. And literally the whole facial skin sometimes will lift like a mask, you know, about a week and a half afterwards. It's traumatic. For me, this, it's just too much. Okay. So the other three, though, classes of peels are totally safe and okay yes. to do from a holistic plastic surgeon? I think it's totally safe, but it depends on who does. Like you don't want, if you're going to do something at home, then it's just lunchtime strength. 
The other ones need to be done under a trained hand, whether it's an esthetician or a nurse or a physician. Let's take a quick break to hear from our show sponsor. I am always looking for a great gift idea and Coconut personal lubricants are always a huge hit for your partners and the perfect Valentine's Day gift. If you're making clean ingredient swaps, it is so important to make sure you are getting quality ingredients that are good for your body inside and out. Coconut oil and water-based lubricants have the healthiest ingredients list I've seen. They use all natural ingredients, are cruelty-free, made in the USA, and their packaging is plastic-free. For an exclusive discount code, head to coconut.com. That is coconut without the T. And use code CARALYN15 for 15% off your order. That's K-A-R-A-L-Y-N-N-E-1-5. My code stacks with their on-site discounts. So order today and thank me tomorrow. Now back to the show. So those are your five pillars of rejuvenation. But with this non-invasive treatment one, I do want to ask, because this is very trendy around where I live and it's trendy on social media, but what are your thoughts on things that help with fine lines and wrinkles, meaning fillers and Botox? So Botox is the most popular cosmetic treatment probably in the history of the world. And I'll tell you, a lot of our friends who are, you know, alternative medicine experts and stuff, a lot of them get Botox. I mean, it's so obvious. And a lot of them get filler too. But so Botox, you know, really when you're looking at it from a more holistic perspective, uh, is it actually safe? You know, well, Botox is one of the most powerful toxins that we know of on the planet. And if I were to inject a tiny amount into you, Carlin, you would die pretty quickly afterwards. But... But if we take the most minuscule amount of Botox, we mix it with some saline and we inject it into certain muscles that create wrinkles, it can block the transmission of nerve impulses to those muscles for about three to four months. And those muscles are essentially weakened or paralyzed and they don't create those lines anymore. And it really works. It lasts about three to four months. The treatment is minimally painful. It's the tiniest little needle that you inject. Now, the concern that some people have is, you know, is there a chance that this is going to make you sick? Is it going to cause systemic illness and stuff like that? And this is something I really looked into because I had a friend of mine who called me up one day and she is a naturopath. And she said, look, I've got these weird neurologic symptoms after getting Botox. I don't know if it's the Botox or it's something else because it's been going on for a while. Hmm. And so she said, you know, have you heard of this before? And I said, look, I haven't. And I actually started calling around to dermatologist friends of mine other practitioners, has anybody seen systemic issues, basically like autoimmune type issues that we think, you know, could be due to Botox? And everybody said no. Now I have treated in my practice, you know, I've been in practice about 20 years. We've treated realistically 10, 10 to 20,000 people, probably like 20,000 people with Botox in 20 years. And I have not once seen a real complication from it. The most we've seen maybe is a little bit of bruising. I had two patients with a temporary droopness of the eyelid when the Botox kind of spread to the eyelid. That all went away after three to four months. But if you go online, there are Facebook groups that have relatively small numbers of people who believe they've been injured systemically from Botox. There was a mouse study where they injected Botox into the muscles of the mouse or rat's head or face and actually sampled their cerebral spinal fluid afterwards and did find some botulinum in the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid afterwards. So we do know that it may potentially migrate, but we have not seen any sign that this is anything that has been harmful at all. And it's been around for, I mean, decades now. When you're talking about 7 million people getting it done every day, and really, unlike breast implants, there's not this huge 
uproar of, hey, people are getting sick from it, I believe that it's definitely safe. Okay, so interesting, because on a lot of these, um, like alternative health pages, groups, things like that, they talk about the burden overload in your body saying like, our livers are dealing with too many toxins. That's why people are getting sick. Like we've got to help reduce our toxin load and help our liver out. And so they're saying by doing Botox, you're increasing your toxic load. Do you agree with that or no? I agree with the general sentiment of it. You know, I mean, I'm all for using clean beauty products. I'm all for cleaning up your environment. The amount of botulinum toxin that you get and you're doing it, let's say two to three times a year at the most, when you're actually looking at the amount in that, it's such a tiny, tiny amount. And there's no evidence that it necessarily goes much outside of that muscle other than that rat study I told you about. It's not something that I am all that concerned with at this moment. You know, am I concerned about herbicides and pesticides and a a lifetime accumulation of those types of things and microplastics and all that, definitely yes. But is Botox going to be a significant contributor to that? I have my doubts, but I can't tell you for sure. Okay, good to know. The other thing is people will say like, we don't know the long-term effects of Botox and what it will cause to somebody 20, 30 years down the road. But that's not necessarily true since we've had it for decades, right? Yeah, I mean, it's been used since the 90s, really, for cosmetic use, like the mid to late 90s. So It's been around a long time. Now, it is important if you're going to get Botox, you want to make sure that it is real Botox. You know, I get advertisements in my office all the time from places overseas offering me cheap overseas Botox. And I don't know if it's real. I don't know if it's fake, but Hmm. but it's technically against a law to buy it. But there have been doctors who have been convicted and indicted for actually importing cheap Botox from overseas or Botox, what you think may be Botox and using it on patients. That's something you do want to be careful of. And it's really just, you know, having it done at a place that's reputable, not some, you know, fly by night place that opened up in a strip mall next to you. That may not be the best place to get your Botox. You know, make sure it's a real doctor's office where you know that, that you can trust that, that they're, you know, for me, I could save, you know, each vial of Botox cost me over $600 and I could get them on these prices places for like 300, 250 bucks. Oh, wow. But I would never do that to right. my patients, but I can't tell you other people wouldn't. Right. Okay, so if someone, though, doesn't want to do Botox, then they have other options by going and doing these laser treatments and microneedling and things like that that could possibly help as well, right? Yeah, but the difference is is that they treat different things. And so if you're looking at surface issues like uh, fine lines and wrinkles, spots, texture, that type of thing, then yes, you can use lasers and microneedling and all of that. But Botox really is the only thing that's going to really effectively target wrinkles in the forehead, which are caused by muscles, what we call the 11th sign, which are the frown lines between the brows, and then the crow's feet. Those are what we call dynamic wrinkles. They're wrinkles caused by muscles. And doing laser treatments to it or microneedling, that is only gonna get you a minimal improvement because unless you treat the root cause of those wrinkles, which are the muscles, you're, you're only really treating the symptoms. You know, we talk about root cause and medicine, you know, holistic medicine all the time, but it's technically the same way when you're looking at these lines. Oh, that's so interesting. I've never heard anyone explain it that way. Okay, so then what are your thoughts on fillers? Because are those toxic? So fillers in general are more dangerous than Botox, and I'll explain why. So fillers, essentially, the way I describe them to my patients, it's like synthetic skin. And the original fillers that we used were made of collagen. Makes sense because our skin is composed mainly of collagen. The problem with collagen though, is it only lasted about three to four months at most, and it would disappear very quickly. Companies started developing hyaluronic acid fillers. Hyaluronic acid is a naturally occurring moisturizer of the skin. 
And a couple of great things about hyaluronic acid is that you can create or synthesize it and cross-link it to the point where you can make the hyaluronic acid filler very thin and watery. So like if you've got little areas like under your eyes that you want to inject where you want it really thin so it's not lumpy, then you can create it to be that way. Or you can thicken it where it will have more strength and stability. Like if you want to inject into somebody's cheekbone areas or let's say their chin, you can make it look and feel more like bone. So that's the first benefit of hyaluronic acid fillers. The second benefit of it is that they are reversible. So there's an enzyme called hyaluronidase that you can inject into an HA filler after the filler is injected, and it will actually melt that filler away, and some of it almost instantly. Hmm. And that's really important because if you get a complication from fillers, you can reverse it. Now, there are other fillers out there that are not hyaluronic acid fillers. There are fillers like Bellafil, like Radius, like liquid silicone that people are injecting. Doctors are injecting these fillers. And the reason why I'm not a fan of those, number one, if you have a bad result, you can't melt it away. You just have to live with it. And number two, most important, the worst thing that can happen if you get filler injected poorly is that that filler can be injected into an artery. Arteries supply blood supply to parts of our face. And if you inject the filler into that artery up, that part of your face may not be getting enough blood supply. It becomes ischemic, meaning it starts getting problems of being alive, essentially, and it can necrose or it can actually die. And there are people who've had filler injections and have lost parts of their lip, parts of their nose. They've even gone blind from injections of filler that are done inappropriately. Now, if you accidentally, and we've seen it in my practice, we've had two patients with intravascular occlusions These happened, gosh, maybe eight, nine years ago, and they were HA fillers, so we were able to inject it hyaluronidase and melt it away, and it reversed, and it was fine. But if you have one of these other fillers, Bellafil, Radius, silicone, and that happens to you, essentially you're screwed. You know, you just have to put warm compresses on it and go into hyperbaric oxygen, you know, take some aspirin, and just pray to God that, that something clears up and it gets better. So... If you're going to get filler, make sure you have a hyaluronic acid-based filler like Restylane or Juvederm. Don't use any of the other ones because the other ones are definitely much riskier. Okay. I'm so glad I asked you. I didn't actually know a lot of that information. So thank you. Okay. So we've talked about your five pillars, but I'm interested, should there be a six pillar called lifestyle factors like distress, sleep, exercise play a role as well? Yes. And actually in my book, Younger for Life, I go over all of that. So definitely those are lifestyle factors that I think are so, so important. I didn't put them in my list just because, you know, one of the things we have in the book are 21 day jumpstart. And it's really how people can get on a program of simple 21 days where you change what you eat, add a couple of uh, supplements, you do a little bit of intermittent fasting, you get on the right skincare plan. If you want to add some red light, you can. And we're seeing great changes with just those 21 days. For me, yes, sleep is in there. I'm a huge fan of yoga. I'm a big fan of weight training. Um, And all of that is in my book, Younger for Life. I just didn't include that in those pillars of overall skin aging because I wanted to try to simplify for people and not be like, hey, you got to do all this. All those. In addition to that, make sure you get good sleep and make sure that's all super important. But yeah, but but don't want to overload people. Okay, that makes sense. All right, we've talked all about skin, but you are a plastic surgeon. And I know my listeners have talked to me about this many times. So I actually want to just jump subjects for a minute. We're almost running out of time, but we'll talk about this quickly. Breast implants, because this is a very controversial subject. Some are saying it's fine. Others are saying remove them. They're making people sick. 
So what are your thoughts on this? It's definitely a hot topic. I think this is different than the Botox thing and that the Botox thing, I'm not convinced that Botox truly creates systemic illness in people. Now, maybe there is a really rare case of that, but breast implants are a different thing. Basically, the story of breast implants is that back in 1992, uh, the FDA put a moratorium on silicone breast implants because there was a huge uproar of women basically believing that their silicone breast implants were making them sick. So Dow Chemical went bankrupt. There was a huge class action lawsuit. And then the government took them off the market all the way up until 2006. Now, I did my plastic surgery training between 98 and 2004. And throughout the entire, or 2003, the entire time I did my training, uh, I was told by all the plastic surgeons that breast implants do not make people sick. These women were just nuts. They didn't know what they're talking about. It was other things. And they said, and the studies support that implants do not make people sick. And this was the dogma for many, many years. So I finished and I started my practice in 2004. I was doing really well. I did a lot of breast implants and stuff. And then that event I told you about that really got me starting to wonder like, wait a minute, am I missing things here? Is what I was taught not true? So the breast implant illness started coming up and I had some patients ask me about it. And I said, you know, I was always taught that the studies show that implants do not make people sick. But honestly, Carolyn, did I look really closely at these studies? No, I was just told this and I read it in journal articles where they said that this was, but I didn't actually pull these studies up myself and, and analyze them. So I started going to websites of breast implant illness advocates and I started looking at the papers that they actually cited and the research and references. And I started looking those studies up and I'm like, wow, I've never heard of these studies because these weren't in the plastic surgery literature, which was supported and helped paid for by breast implant companies. These were in the rheumatology literature, in mm. internal medicine, and other types of um, scientific journals that I was not reading. So I started going down the rabbit hole of that, and I started realizing that there was a lot to this that I did not know about, and that the dogma in plastic surgery that breast implants are safe for everybody may be wrong. Um, so I was one of the first plastic surgeons several years ago to go public with this, saying that, you know what, I think there's really something here, and I think breast implants do make some patients sick. And I did get quite a bit of pushback from my colleagues, some being quite upset with me that I made this statement. I had doctors call me and say, you know what, you got to start talking about this, like people are getting upset with you. So what does the science show? You know, the problem, Carlin, is that the studies are very limited. The ones that have been done on implants are typically supported by implant companies. Those studies have not really been very good at looking at systemic issues with implants, hair loss, fatigue joint aches, fibromyalgia, stuff like that. They're good at looking at surgical complications like hematoma and capsular mm. contracture and you know implant displacement and rupture, but not great at looking at those other symptoms. And so now there are a lot of studies that are being performed to look at this. The fact is we don't have much data. The data that we have shows that if you feel you have these symptoms, you know, let's say you have implants and you have your hair is getting thinner, you've got weird rashes, you've got muscle aches, you've got weird tastes in your mouth and stuff like that. If you have your implants taken out, there's about a 55 to 85% chance that your symptoms will significantly improve. But that's not 100%, you know? And, and I get patients who come to see me, they want implants, and I go through all the symptoms of breast implant illness, and they stop me and they go, Dr. Yoon, I have breast implant illness already. And I'm like, well, you don't have implants. They go, but I've got all those symptoms, you know? So there are other causes of it too. And right. it just it muddies it up. And it's really, it's a, it's a difficult subject. So I think to put it all together, you know, as a board certified holistic plastic surgeon, I would say that I think that some women do get sick from their implants. 
We do not know how to predict who they would be at this moment. If you have a lot of allergies, if you've got autoimmune disease already, you might be at higher risk of that. And we do know if you do get those symptoms, there's about a 55 to 85% chance that removal of your implants will make it better. However, if you've got implants and you have rip-roaring autoimmune disease, you know, if you're already diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and you've had it for 20 years, taking your implants out is unlikely to make those conditions that much better. So interesting. Okay, so it is not a everybody needs to take them out because they're making everybody sick. It's a really individual basis of their health and their genetics and how they react to these, correct? That's what I believe. You know, I think there are extremes. There are plastic surgeons who will say that implants are safe for everybody. And if women think that they make them sick, then they're crazy. And there are doctors who are saying that to their patients. It, it just makes me so angry. Uh, and then there are those people who say all implants are toxic. Nobody should get them. And I don't know that that's true either. You know, I know a lot of holistic health practitioners, big influencers who have implants and they're super healthy and they haven't affected them at all. I think like anything, it is an individual thing. And if somebody thinks that they're making them sick, see your doctor. It, it is a diagnosis of exclusion. And what that means is that we don't have any blood tests. We don't have any way to tell that you have BII. Unfortunately, the only way to tell is if you take the implants out. And for some women, it makes them better, 55 to 85%, but the other percentage, it doesn't seem to help. And maybe then in those situations, it could be that their symptoms are due to something different. I am so glad you, know, you like explained all of mold that. Mold or something. Right. Yeah. There, and there's so many underlying root causes to people's health issues. And so instead of just hurrying and jumping on that bandwagon, it's go to a functional doctor, do a lot of different testing, see what some of the other options may be as well. I have seen a few patients over the last couple of years where they saw me for BII. I remember one specifically, she came in, she goes, yeah, I think I have BII. And I said, you know, we can take your implants out, blah, 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 blah. And then she disappeared for about two years. And she came back to see me two years later for her to get her eyelids done. And I said, well, what happened with your breasts? And she said, oh, I went to see a functional medicine physician and I got on these supplements. I cleaned up my diet, my lifestyle, and all my symptoms went away. Oh, <laughs> interesting. So, like, so you still have your implants? She goes, oh yeah, yeah, and I love them. I didn't oh. want to take them out in the first place anyway. And uh, so I feel great. And hey, let's go do my eyelids. <laughs> okay. okay. That is so interesting. That's good to know because people sometimes just jump on a bandwagon that they see on social media and think that must be the reason rather than going and seeing what their individual reason is. So thank you for yeah. explaining that. And thank you so much for being here today. I have so many more questions I can ask you, but actually let's answer this for people because I know people are going to say, but there are things that I want to go get plastic surgery for. What should someone look for in a doctor when they're going to go look for a procedure? Um, so if you're thinking about actual plastic surgery, and once again, I'm a real plastic surgeon, so I still do this, uh, you want to make sure you seek a surgeon that's certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery, because there are a lot of doctors who are ditching their chosen profession and basically masquerading as plastic surgeons. Um, so the American Board of Plastic Surgery, and then you want to make sure that, that that doctor has a good reputation in your area. You can talk to your friends who maybe work at local hospitals and really just have to talk to people and see what the reputation is. Now, there are other things you can do. You can go to your local courts and see how many lawsuits that doctor has. If that doctor is like got 12 lawsuits, then you got to wonder. Um, and then the other thing is meet with that doctor. The amount of time and effort that that doctor spends with you in a consultation is going to be directly proportional to the amount of time and care that doctor spends with you during and after your operation. If that doctor seems like they're in a hurry, if they're not listening to your concerns, if they're just trying to sell, sell, sell you a surgery, then you got to keep in mind that maybe they don't have your best interests in mind. My consultation is not, what can I do for you? It's, 
hey, let's talk about what your concerns are and how to potentially make you happy. And, you know, I turn down one out of every five people that come to see me. Uh, but mm. there are some consultations where it literally is what surgeries do you want? And this is how much it costs. Like, so just just be careful. Speak with your doctor. Make sure you've got the right feeling from those physicians and then really do your homework and, and do a little bit of research and recon on the doctor, too. Such good advice. All right. Well, would you tell my listeners where to find your book, which you guys It is an amazing book. What he's talked about today is just a little tiny portion of this book. This book has the most amazing recipes in it too, you guys. Tell them where you can find your book and where they can find you on social media. Thank you. So the book is Younger for Life. It's available everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Target. Um, And we have a website called autojuvenation.com. At the website, if you do buy the book, we do have a bunch of free gifts. We have a $30 gift certificate to my online store, Yoon Beauty, where we sell Uh, organic and natural supplements and skincare products. We've got a free companion recipe book and other types of things as well. And then social media, I'm everywhere. You can find me, Dr. Yoon. The last name is Y-O-U-N. And and I want to thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun, Carolyn. Well, thank you so much for being here. And you guys on like TikTok and well, all his social media platforms, his videos are so fun to watch and you learn so much in just a short period of time. So go follow him. And then Tony, I always end my podcast by asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Uh, My best ingredient in life, I think, is gratitude. Uh, One of the things that I put this in the last chapter of my book that my wife and I are dedicated to is um, we adopt um, old um, rescue dogs. Mm. Uh, and so dogs that are senior rescues that are having a hard time finding a home. And uh, one of the things that I learned, you know, as far as, you know, I just turned 51. And as I'm getting older, it's made me realize that I learned so much from these little dogs that unfortunately only have them for a couple of years at a time because when we get them, they're older. But to see their resilience and how happy they are just to have a loving home and to have a loving family To me, I think that gratitude, it it teaches me gratitude and to be happy with kind of those little simple things, you know? And so when something doesn't go right with something in business or even with my practice or something like that, you know, it really kind of grounds me and makes me realize that, you know what, here's this little thing who's had sometimes horrible life before meeting us. And then you give them a nice home and they're just so happy and to be there with them in those last, you know, couple of years. And especially when, you know, they take their last breath and you're with them and holding them. It's just such a gift. Uh, And so for me, it's all gratitude. You know, it's like, it's tough to get older because you don't like what you see in the mirror, but the alternative is not a fun thing to consider. And so, hey, this is a great time to fight it every step of the way because we have so much available to us. But always remember that it is a blessing to get older. That is true. A huge blessing to be here on the earth another day. I love that thought of gratitude and what a great thing you do with those dogs. That is really a cool thing. And they give us more than we give them. Yep. I do know that being a dog owner, I do know that. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I know my listeners have learned a ton. Listeners, like I said, go give him a follow, go grab his book. It's amazing. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Carolyn. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.